it's perhaps harder to recognize violence in the forms it most often and most dangerously takes in the vast surrounding all-encompassing forms of violence that stretch across lifetimes, geographies and generations. Once you scratch the surface, violence moves beyond a mere descriptor into a function of power, a strategy, a series of continued actions mobilized by institutions of all kinds, schools, healthcare systems, states and settler-colonial states and multinational corporations to name a few. These grand slow violences are often so difficult to recognize because they exceed the language we have available to describe them. They are shrouded in silence in words unspoken. They can be buried in so many ways. So a discussion of violence prompts a series of necessary questions. How do you speak about something which language cannot articulate? How can we talk about painful and continuing forms of violence in ways that center and attend to those experiencing them? What place does violence have in social movements, which will always be deemed violent regardless of their actions? What, if anything, can we do with this knowledge? And for example, what does it mean to truly heed the words of activist Kimberly Jones, who when speaking at a protest in the US last summer said that, they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. What do we do with these words? I want to make clear that this space should be as easy to be in as possible, and if difficult things arise, I want you to feel able to react as you wish. If you want cameras on or off, if you need to leave, if you want to lie down, please do whatever makes you comfortable. And if there are any issues, send me a private message in the chat and I'll see what I can do. Uh, so the two speakers we have here today are in the best possible position to help us untangle these messy knots of understanding. And I can't hear, can't wait to hear what they have to say. And so I'd like to welcome Akanksha Mehta, who is a lecturer in gender, sexuality and cultural studies and the co-director of the Center for Feminist Research at Goldsmiths, alongside Ruba Sali, Professor of Anthropology and Sociology and Chair of the Center for Migration and Diaspora Studies at SOAS University. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Thank you so much, Rory, and thank you so much, Amy. Uh, thank you, firstly, for having us here in this space and creating this really wonderful intimate space to have this conversation and also just like how you've just organized it talked about what the context is what the overall project is and also just what the rules and guidelines framing this discussion is like this is a really accessible and wonderful feminist space that you've created and like i'm really really grateful to be part of this i'm also really grateful to be here with ruba uh, when I was a PhD student at SOAS, at Center for Gender Studies, Ruba was a reader and senior lecturer, I think, and reader at the same place. And it's been like quite wonderful to, you know, share this space after so many years of like knowing each other. So, yeah, so thank you for having us and for everyone who's here to be part of this conversation. So, sorry, can you just give me a minute? Oh, okay. Someone was at the door. Um, what we're going to do is just have a conversation about some of the things that we've been thinking about on the topic of violence. I think the way that Rory really framed the session was quite expansive and brings up a lot of the issues that like we've been grappling with as those who've been thinking, writing, reading on violence. So I'm just going to like start with these two quotes that some of you in the audience who I can recognize as being students at Goldsmiths have probably heard me say this before, but there are these two quotes by Veena Das that I find quite useful when we think about violence. And the first one says, 
How is it that we can find references to courage, sacrifice, heroism, cowardice, despair, grief, angst, anger, suffocation, laughter, parody, longing, love, hate, disgust, horror, fear, pain, suffering. In fact, every conceivable kind of emotion or disposition as part of the experience of violence. And the second one says violence is something that has the potential to both disrupt the ordinary and become part of the ordinary. And I think that these words, you know, they're from 2008 and from Vina Das's work back then, but we can still think of them in so many ways right now, because as Rory pointed out, what is violence and how do we even conceptualize violence? Something that seems so ubiquitous, I'd like to think it's the right word that I used, but also something that is often mediated to us as something spectacular, something out there, something, you know, that, that we can get desensitized to. At the same time, it's structuring lives of so many, of black and brown, working class, queer, disabled, trans people around the world who are being affected by state violence, by settler colonial violence, by the violence of racial capitalism. So for to just just to sort of frame this and I'm going to hand over to Ruba in a bit and then come back and we'll just have a back and forth. I think like more than like us trying to define what violence is, which is what often happens in many academic discussions or thinking about violence. What is the more interesting question is what is signified as violence and when, why and how. At what point is something articulated as violence and in what ways and by whom. So this brings us to the discussions on how protests and uprisings often get framed. And I'm thinking here recently after the murder of Sarah Everard in the UK, in London, when there were calls for having you know, a, a response, a space to grieve as well as a space to express anger and rage at the ways in which state and police had enabled this kind, have enabled this kind of gender-based sexual violence that has become quite, uh, you know, that, that, that is tied into the fabric of like everyday life in this country and in the world globally. And a lot happened in the aftermath of that murder. Firstly, the, 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 the revelation that it was the police that was like, that was a police officer opened up conversations on abolition in a very different way. Because as Lola Olufemi has pointed out, abolition often you know, runs into this conversation where the question of sexual violence or gender-based violence comes up. And there seems to be almost an intuitive, impulsive, like sort of move to go into carceral ideas of justice. And that the murder of Sarah Everett opened up a very public conversation and connecting it to kill the bill and, and the protest the sisters uncut led to start thinking about how abolition was really something quite concrete that we needed to bring into every conversation on gender-based and sexual violence. It also opened up conversations on what violence counts and what violence actually matters, what violence is given attention, because as many have pointed out, you know, uh, other women and non-binary people uh, of color have been murdered through gender-based and sexual violence regimes of the state and the ways in which it, it is experienced in, in the everyday, but similar kinds of attention have never been paid. But the conversation that was very interesting to me and really important to me was this conversation around the aftermath. When people gathered to protest and to, and to show anger, rage, and also grief together, it became a sort of framing between peaceful vigil and violent protest. Uh, 
where when the police in Clapham Common attacked protesters, arrested protesters, and unleashed various forms of state violence against protesters, the conversation on one hand became, well, there were mostly women who were just laying down flowers and grieving, and the police attacked you know, a sort of subject that was seen as nonviolent because it was mainly those signified as women, many, many white women who were using flowers that are usually symbolized as, you know, some kind of peaceful gesture. And this kind of framing between this was just a vigil, people just wanted to grieve. Whereas, you know, if had it been a so-called violent protest, then police violence would have been more acceptable. And this is where the problem lies, that we tend to kind of resort to this binary of what is violence and what is peace quite easily. There were a lot of critiques of this kind of sentiment that particularly focused on Black Lives Matter uprisings, saying that when Black Lives Matter uprisings are going on in the streets, are there also not spaces of grieving and mourning? You know, and, and who is allowed to grieve and mourn and in what ways? Can we only grieve and mourn in these sort of so-called peaceful ways? And what bodies are actually allowed to grieve and mourn? So here are some really interesting conversations and things, not just conversations that we have in you know, academic terms, but conversations that are directly related to our political organizing against state violence and against carceral violence that we need to think about. What gets signified as violence? What gets signified as peace? When do we run from violence to peace? And when do we start having this urge to justify, no, no, this was actually peaceful. Hence, state violence is not acceptable. You know, what about the lives of like queer, disabled, black, brown, trans people of color who are facing, as Yuri put it, slow violence in such a continual way? Why is it that then we don't resort to this idea of nonviolence and peace, but that violence just goes through structures that no one contests? So I'm going to pass to Ruba and then come back and then we'll just see how the conversation goes. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you very much, everyone, for inviting me. I, I was very excited to, to be in this kind of setting, to discover that something that like this experience exists in Newington. And uh, it's a bit of a pain to be online, and I would have wanted to really be there and um, feel the vibe of the place and uh, to know the history of the I mean, I, I got very curious about the legacy of this place. and. Uh, I, I, I was very enthusiastic and I'm, I'm very grateful for the, this invitation. And likewise, I was really um, excited to see and hear that uh, Akanshka was going to be around <laughs> the same event. Uh, so thank you very much for, um, for this opportunity. Um, so actually Akanshka has started uh, her reflections by quoting Vena Das and, by, and, and Rory and uh, Amy as well, I think have touched upon some of the issues that I've been Kind of thinking about over the years um, around um, my research, which focuses on, uh, particularly in the last few years, on Palestinian refugees and um, political agency. Um, and obviously, when we talk about Palestinian refugees, uh, we cannot but think about um, long histories of displacement, of violence, ongoing dispossession. So, a violence that hasn't um, had a, a starting moment and an ending, but that is ongoing. And in Arabic, we call the Nakba, the catastrophe that happened in 1948, the ongoing Nakba, the ongoing catastrophe. So let me start my, um, my brief set of reflections or my, my initial set of reflections around uh, uh, the recent events. Um, so the bombing of Gaza, the, um, the ethnic cleansing that uh, we have um, come to be 
uh, used to see happening in East Jerusalem or in some of the neighborhoods of uh, occupied East uh, Jerusalem, like uh, Sheikh Jarrah and um, Silwan and other places. Um, and the reflection I would like to share about the violence that we have been seeing unfolding in the last months or two, um, particularly around these places in which the Israeli army killed at least um, 287 Palestinians, out of which um, 70 were children. Um, to me, one aspect that was really striking is um, not only, of course, the, uh, the ongoingness, and we know that every six, seven years, Gaza goes through uh, a carpet raising um, and, and the pain of witnessing the regularity, the cyclical nature of this violence that seems to have no end is obviously the most overwhelming aspect. But there was one other perhaps minor aspect that uh, to me was also striking and I think it needs to be mentioned here, um, which is the way in which as we were all kind of glued onto social media or to the places and spaces where Palestinians had, had the possibility of showcasing what they were going through, um, it was clear that there was a constant attempt to film, to bring cameras into intruding into the most painful moments of grief uh, the most intimate moments of burials um, and pain um, that ensued this um, catastrophe, this uh, new catastrophe. And obviously the reason of this is that the, erasures, the erasure of the Palestinian voices and, and the dehumanizing, the constant dehumanizing of Palestinians um, has been tried to kind of be resisted with this ubiquitous presence of media, of pictures, of of signs that could, in a desperate attempt to kind of uh, showcase the violence, the, the fact that Palestinians are the victims in this situation of settler colonialism and the kind of violence and pain that they endure and are subject to for, for now 70 years. However, I couldn't help but thinking that these, um, these constant um, desperate need to showcase, to show, to, to bring the images, to bring the cameras in the most intimate, desperate moments of, of loss and, and grief was also an effect of violence and um, uh, an indirect effect of violence um, and also had its own dehumanizing effect. Um, <clears throat> so this desperate attempt to make one, one's pain um, and, and grief visible the denial of privacy in these tragic moments so that the world can see, I consider another, as I said, another effect of, of, of settler colonial violence, um, which also, and this will bring me to my second kind of set of reflections. I don't know, maybe I'll talk about them later, but which also really brings into, uh, forcefully into the, the, onto the table or into the conversation, the, um, the very subtle need um, to this, the very subtle contradictory work um, of violence where people <clears throat> are subject to um, the painful need to remember, uh, but also uh, they should be allowed the dignified right to forget or to privacy when it comes to these very difficult uh, moments of their lives. So, um, so this for me was uh, really something I wanted to bring to this audience as one of the issues that I've been grappling with. Uh, we as Palestinians have been used to, we are trained to counteract the, our erasure by having to showcase, to show, to bring to, 
to bring to the fore um, our pain as the only kind of possibility we have. But at the same time, I consider this another effect of settler colonial violence and of our own dehumanizing. And also I wanted to say that in Palestine, the most forceful tool we had to resist this erasure has been for a long time oral history. Our archives have been destroyed. Our society wasn't one that um, was organized around, um, um, around uh, deeds and titles and, uh, and written sources. Uh, and so oral history has been our tool to, uh, of resistance of, of countering the erasure. And, and yet this oral history has often been very much imbued by nationalist frames, which has meant that certain memories uh, are given more visibility over others, or that uh, we have been also forced, uh, going back to the issue I raised before, to remember, um, and to remember in a way that is um, meaningful to our audience through facts, to, through facts that can be verified through images, through, um, through the grounds set by our um, oppressor. Um, and yet what I would like to talk about here is actually, as I mentioned, the, the kind of subtle contradictory work between um, remembering and forgetting, or if you wish, uh, the relationship, the wider relationship between violence and memory uh, and the place of vulnerability in these memories and what kind of place can vulnerability have also as a radical political way of rethinking um, agency, if you wish. But maybe I can talk about this um, in a moment in, the, in, in a kind of, um, after maybe Akanchka has also um, been able to respond to this or to, to connect to this. Thank you for that, Ruba. I'm really looking forward to listening more and to actually reading this piece. I know you said that it's unpublished, this writing, this, but yeah. It would be like really great to have it out there. Yeah, I mean, I can continue, but. Uh, yeah, do you want to continue and then I can come in after that? Yeah, um, yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> as I mentioned, um, I'm very interested in these issues and um, Akanshka has um, uh, brought to, to the fore the very powerful words of uh, Vena Das, an, anthropology, an anthropologist who has worked who has produced some of the most um, powerful feminist work, I think, on, on uh, uh, what come to be seen as perhaps um, the, 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 the non-nationalist, the most marginal uh, ways of thinking about violence. And particularly when it comes to the relationship between violence, vulnerability and memory and trauma. Um, so the question really I'm, I'm kind of grappling with in my, in my research and, and, and which I would like to share share with you today is around, uh, again, you know, what does this um, remembering and narrating and, and visualizing as a form of agency does uh, to the subjects of, of violence? Um, and how and whether the impetus to remember and narrate can be reconciled with the need, as I said, to forget when the pain and the suffering are too deep and too traumatic to be able to be remembered um, and narrated and when our interlocutors want and ask us to, to forget. So where does it leave us with the, 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 the fact that we are um, almost um, impeded from this very human act of forgetting when our history is a traumatic history? Um, and to that, to that aim, um, I would like to um, 
to go back to the point I was making before that for too long, I think we have been used to think that agency lies in, um, in, 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 in a type of resistance that is very much tied to taking, um, taking <clears throat> to the publics um, through um, sort of like, if you remember the first and second intifadas through sort of a very visible and uh, embodied form of reaction, whether through stones or through um, taking away even earlier than the first intifada, the young uh, men from the Israeli soldiers, that was the role of the mothers um, to uh, the boycott to you know all kinds of actions and um, and forms of agencies that happen and take place in the public sphere are what account um, to to resistance to this violence uh, and 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 are what are mainly recognized as, as forms of resistance and yet I'm actually interested in fracturing this way of thinking about resistance and to bring to light what can potentially be the powerful work of uh, vulnerability, the powerful work of the private, the ordinary, uh, the seemingly insignificant aspects uh, that are remembered against the aspect that should be remembered but can't be remembered because the trauma is too powerful. Um, and if we are able to read through these kind of narratives that are counter narratives in my view, might, we might be able to also see counter histories. Um, um, to, to the nationalist history. Um, so, um, so in what follows, I think I would really like to uh, actually bring, you, bring a story to you, which I think most clearly offers um, palpable kind of material to reflect on, 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 on the issues I'm trying to unfold here. Um, and, and through this history, I hope to kind of, again, um, underline the, the powerful nature of silences, of, of, of histories that are invisible, of inconsistencies, of, um, of the details that are not uh, accounted for because they are not heroic according to the national uh, account of history. Um, so basically I want to linger over the potentialities of traumatic fragmented memories as opposed to uh, fact-based um, um, accounts and um, narrations. Um, so let me tell you a story of a woman that I, I would call Subhiya. Uh, obviously this is not her near name. This is a, a testimony I, um, I want to bring to the fore. I collected it um, during fieldwork. Um, and she tells um, the story of um, her, um, attempt to escape from uh, 1948, uh, the carnage that was taking place around the village that she had sought refuge into after escaping her original village. So um, she starts her reflection uh, by telling us about Safsaf, which is the village that she had escaped to, which was seven, seven, a village that is seven kilometers northwest of Safad, where Subhiya, um, had found refuge in 1948. However, this village had been attacked in the early mornings of um, 1948 uh, of, of a Friday uh, morning in October uh, by the um, Jewish paramilitary organizations, the Haganah, the Stern and the Irgun. 
which were paramilitary units that were responsible for um, attacking villagers and, and um, making sure that uh, people would escape either uh, out of fear or would, you know, would kind of be um, directly attacked and, and, and killed in the attacks. Um, so the, the village was encircled from all sides and um, that night, the, the story actually of Safsaf is very uh, well known in, in Palestinian oral history because it's one of those villages where between 50 and 70 men were shot and buried in a ditch and several women were raped and killed on that occasion. Um, but Subhiya su survived this massacre. Um, and sometime earlier, she had escaped her hometown along with many others seeking safety from the fury of war as the forces were attacking the surrounding villages one after another. And today we know that most of these villagers left, as I mentioned, out of uh, grief, fear. In fact, one terror tactic wielded by uh, the military organizations was to bro broadcast ghastly sounds of sirens, of fire, of moans, of shrieks and wailing women, forewarnings what could have happened should Palestinians decide to stay put. Um, so the story of um, Subhiya is that um, she remained in Safsaf because Safsaf seemed quite safe to her and, and her family was generously actually welcomed by the villagers of, of, this, um, of this little village um, uh, for the time that they thought this would provide them a little bit of security and most people thought that they would go back to their original villages. Yet the armies would soon reach Safsaf and amidst this chaos and the terror, Subhiya attempts to run from this imminent uh, attack. But the Arab Salvation Army is patrolling the area and sending villagers, villagers back. Subhiya's sister-in-law, Nazha, is returning from the fields, unaware Safsaf has been attacked. She will lose her leg on a landmine planted around the village. Subhiya's memory is fixed on this moment. She's carrying Nazha on her shoulders. She needs to get her away from the shelling and shooting quite fast, but Subhiya is young and she's barely more than a child. She cannot bear the weight of her sister-in-law's wounded body. So in this fraught moment, Nazha begs Subhiya to leave her behind and save the children who are trapped in the house with no defense. Subhiya is thus confronted with a dramatic choice. Should she remain with Nazha or run to the children's rescue? Subhiya then ends her account remembering leaving her sister-in-law languishing, injured on the ground alone and running to the children. She turns back, she remembers turning back to see the paramilitary forces stabbing Nazha in cold blood before the eyes of her mother who dies of sorrow on the spot. So the question I'm trying to grapple with along um, Vena Das in her work on, on India is how can a survivor apprehend and remember the scale of this kind of violence, the scale of this loss and, and the erasure that follows. Um, and as I said, Palestinians have had to confront extreme hostility also when trying to bring uh, to, to, uh, to life uh, the gruesome details. Uh, they have been constantly denied the possibility to express these horrors, and they have been contested on the grounds of veridicity, of facticity. Um, and so it is obvious that um, oral 
history has turned uh, onto this need, this desperate need to show, to, to bring to the fore, to bring facts, to show the pain, to bear witness. And yet I'm really uh, um, inspired here by um, Primo Levi in his book, The Drowned and the Saved, who reminds us that any reliving and retelling of traumatic memories is susceptible to fraud. But whereas the perpetrators, perpetrators unconscious desire for exculpation provides an incentive to deceive, victims must be absolved for, their broad, for, for what can be a blurred rendition of events as victims' recollection obviously can go adrift. Um, I'm also helped here in my attempts to make sense of how to uh, recognize the powerful nature of blurred memories, of memories that are not attached to facts, uh, but to feelings um, and to snapshots, to flashbacks, um, and how to give them validity. Um, recollecting trauma paradoxically elicits absolutely accurate and precise images that are largely accessible to conscious recall and control. To become a narrative memory, a conscious and active form of recalling that feed the canons of historical validity, trauma must be verbalized and integrated into a larger canvas, into a larger existing discourse around historical events. However, there is also the problem of uh, the impossibility to remember other than in this form, other, in this, other than in this scattered flashback um, way when the trauma is actually not only uh, still unprocessed, but is still ongoing. Um, so, um, and this is very important. Uh, um, th this point um, that is really crucial here, the problem that you know, we know from psychotherapy that in order to be able to remember a trauma, we need to have had uh, or to process it, we, the trauma have, must have been um, ended. Must, the, the conditions that brought to the trauma must have been, must have, um, uh, uh, been closed. But in the Palestinian context, this, as I um, uh, argued at the beginning, uh, the trauma is ongoing. The catastrophe is an ongoing project uh, so that um, this prevents people from, um, and people like Subhiyya, um, from processing and um, healing from um, the trauma that has been caused by this uh, violence. Um, and yet, um, what I think is really important here as well is um, the ways in which paying attention to these traumatic memories in their own terms can allow uh, or can give us a possibility to uh, to rescue some counter histories or, or counter memories of, of resistance that are not to be located in um, these kind of public forms of agency. For example, Subhiya brings to light a hidden history of female courage, uh, of physical resilience, of creativity. When she tells me, for example, her story <clears throat> um, of how she made um, sure that her thirsty child was, being, was able to to drink uh, water, for example, when her husband makes for the border, when the fighting breaks out, leaving her stranded with the two small daughters, she pays some Druze men to escort her to the Lebanese border on the backs of a donkey and a camel, 
with the few belongings she would savage, she could she could savage from uh, from the village. Um, she also astutely hides two her valuables, two gold swing bracelets, in her baby's pillow, and later bargains with some Jewish soldiers um, these bracelets uh, as they demand her gold in exchange for allowing her to cross the border and securing water for her crying thirsty infant. And it's her, again her own resourcefulness that prompts her to plunge her hijab into the bottom of a well and squeeze some water onto her hands when, um, when she cannot find any. Um, and yet again, these are a series of flashbacks that are difficult to, uh, to bring back to a collective rendition uh, of, of um, filled with dates and facts and places. Um, so um, another element here that I think is really interesting and important to, to underline in, 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 in accounting for this um, issue of memory and violence is, um, is the way in which it's often the body that, um, that remembers and that keeps a score. Um, Subhelia's ways of bringing certain images into words demonstrates that her body has been able to, uh, to keep memory of what has gone uh, on and, um, and has kept a score of what she cannot process at a psychic level. So from her memory, we grasp the heaviness of the body that Subhiya had to carry, the food that was eaten, the thirst and the loud cries of the children. So, and I'm sort of about to conclude. In light of Primo Levi's insights that trauma can only be apprehended once a framework exists that can give meaning to these experiences or to use as he does the metaphor of the illness once recovery is completed. It is clear that the atrocities that these women have experienced have yet to be fully processed. Indeed, these kind of accounts testify to injuries that are ongoing in their present lives or wounds which still await recognition and reparation. And the existing historical canvas, which is imbued with nationalist meanings, is what they're offered to inscribe and process the meaning of what they went through. But this canvas is both inadequate and unfinished. As I said, the, ongo the ongoing actuality of the Palestinian tragedy entails uh, not only the impossibility of curing the trauma by narrating or by forgetting, but also the effacement of some of these um, subjective traumatic experiences, which are often very gendered, which are subsumed or erased under the more imperative narratives of collective heroism and resistance. However, in these unprocessed traumatic memories, and I'm really concluding here, we find, I think, seeds of what could be seen as counter narratives. So here, for example, resists making her trauma legible through the trope of martyrdom. In the reversal of the nationalist convention that renders the nationalist trauma, the loss of the country as the paradigm according to which individual histories acquire or lose meaning and to which they can never compare. Ami, um, Subhiya asserts that nothing can compare, can compare to or compensate for the excruciating pain of a mother who has violently lost her child. Uh, in her own poetic and political lyrics, and this is my concluding sentence, and I quote, if I told you that my country could compare to my children, I would be lying. 
A child is more precious than one's own soul. A mother is more important than her child. As they say, I'd rather wish for death to have me and to spare my child. As for my country, she says, I could never forget it. And it remains in my thoughts, but not as much as my children. Even my husband who was martyred, not as much as my children. Not even my sister, not as much as my children. Nor my brother, not as much as my children. My older brother who died, not as much as my children. And my sister died and they all died, but none of them compared to my children. My children were born from my heart. So I leave you with this quote from Subhiya and um, thank you for listening and uh, Akanshka, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ruba. I think we can take like half a minute at least to just let what you said sink in. That was really powerful and moving and opens up so many questions on violence and memory. So I'm just going to take like a few seconds and give everyone a few seconds. So I'm thinking here also like, so some of my research is, is very diametrically different from Ruba's narratives because it is with those who perp perp perpetuate violence. And it is research that looks at the narratives of those who are perpetuating settler colonial nationalist right-wing fascist regimes and to make sense of the violence of women in these movements. But I'm looking particularly at women because often nationalist right-wing settler colonial movements have a lot of male leadership that takes up a lot of room and we, we understand you know, what is going on through those narratives. But there is a whole set of women who are working in these movements behind the scenes and actually like contributing to the perpetuation of everyday violence. And I'm thinking here of so many things that Ruba has pointed out and the ways in which they get manipulated and they get used by those who perpetuate violence. So trauma gets invoked in all sorts of settler colonial right-wing fascist narratives. And the two, you know, the two movements that my research looks at, the Hindu nationalist movement in India and Zionist settler project in Palestine, in both those cases, oral history and trauma gets appropriated in a completely different way, where there is a manufacturing and appropriation of narratives that uh, aiming to justify violence. And this takes on a very gendered, racialized, sexed, you know, uh, framework because a lot of like womanhood and sexuality and nationhood and all of these things are invoked to continuously perpetuate these narratives. And I'm just thinking like, this is really like really spontaneously just thinking about based on what you've said, the ways in which this work happens is so careful and constructed. It's also, it's, 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 like we, we talk a lot about settler colonial and nationalist violence in terms of the dispossession, in terms of the land grab, in terms of resource grab, in terms of, you know, the bombs that fall and the violence of checkpoints, walls, or in India, the violence of policies and the violence of everything that's been going on. But one of the things that we need to pay more attention to is the knowledge production behind the scenes, because it's not arbitrary, like the projects are based on producing certain narratives and certain knowledges. And my research shows a lot on how women 
contribute to most of these narratives behind the scenes. So entire pedagogical projects are constructed to you know, do the work of perpetuating everyday violence. So for example, in the context of Israel, the women that I interviewed who belong to an organization called Women in Green or Women for Israel's Tomorrow, who are settlers in what is called the West Bank, occupied Palestine, but also many of them are in 48 Palestine as well, living in you know, other cities in, in settled, colonized Palestine. A lot of a lot of them work almost full time on on coming up with pedagogical projects, what they call pedagogical projects, to educate people through their narratives. And these are very specific, very tailored to who the audience is. Another theme that continuously comes up is how there is a construction by perpetrators of violence of their own goodness, which again relates to the ways in which they justify the kind of violence that they contribute to. And this sort of investment in showing how good they are often happens through you know, what they would define charitable humanitarian work which it's not because it is completely exclusionary settler colonial nationalist projects that are being seen through. So there's a lot of emphasis again on constructing multiple narratives of how good they are through very, very elaborate systems of what they call community work. And interestingly, these are the systems that they use to then carry out all the surveillance, not only of the communities that they are perpetuating violence against, but also of their own communities. So also surveilling fellow people in the settler colonial project or fellow people in settlements, fellow people in Hindu nationalist neighborhoods or Hindu neighborhoods to see who is, you know, who is contributing to the movement and who is not. So also sort of like turning that surveillance inwards to keep policing each other and to continue to perpetuate violence in different forms. The other thing that like that comes up a lot in these in this spaces where we're like where you know where actively people are coming together to plan violent acts movement structures to continue to perpetuate this violence is that there is a lot of focus on community building friendship and love so a lot of these networks are held together because of narratives of familiarity of you know friendship sociability there's a lot of emphasis on making sure that every single space in which women in the right-wing movements and in the settler colonial movements are doing this work are spaces of leisure and pleasure and joy and so there's almost this sort of like you know this this very dark narrative of like how we deserve joy because we are the victims and this becomes part of solidifying how violence works. So like in my research, I found that often meetings that women would have in order to plan, you know, what they called actions or what they call community work, which would involve active violence against Palestinians, against Muslims, against Kashmiris. In these spaces, there's a lot of emphasis on cultivating joy. And it's really eerie as to how it mirrors the discourse that we see and the, the kind of practices that we see in say feminist queer communities where we are talking about cultivating community, cultivating joy and a similar kind of narrative becomes used but for very exclusionary purposes through exclusionary mechanisms. So I'm thinking here of all this and I think just to sort of like wrap it up, I'm gonna show a video which I was not planning to show, I was just gonna talk about it but I found it on YouTube, it's just a minute long so I'll just show that. But couple of things I wanted to say. One, it's for me, it becomes important to find connections, transnational connections in how 
both how violence is perpetuated because these systems are so interlocking. And we've seen that recently with the action, for example, uh, by Palestine Action who have shut down, who shut down Elbit Systems Factory in the UK. And one of the things that they were saying that, you know, these, these are weapons that are used in Palestine, tested in Kashmir. And so that itself shows us, I mean, this is just one example. We know that violence exists on a continuum. We know that settler colonial regimes work together. We know that global capital structures a lot of uh, things that we are talking about here. So on one hand, looking at transnational connections of violence, and then on the other hand, of course, looking at transnational connections of solidarity and resistance. The, the narrative that Ruba has read out would find resonance in narratives coming from Kashmir right now in different ways. And again, we've seen the kind of solidarity work that Kashmiris have been doing with Palestinians. Palestinians have been doing with Black Lives Matter and you know the, the ways in which Colombia, Palestine, BLM, Kashmir, all of these struggles have come together even in just the last few months and the ways in which people have been quite insistent that we have to fight all of this through a transnational internationalist framework. So just, I'm gonna show you a video and it's gonna look really disconnected from everything we're talking about, but I do have a point as to what I want to say with that. It is an advertisement that came out by a company called Tanishk, which is a company that makes jewelry in India. And it's quite a popular company that makes jewelry. And in India currently, there's like a Hindu right wing, Hindu fascist government that has been in power since 2014. This is the second term. And the movement of Hindu right wing, Hindu nationalism, there are various names that are given to it, has been ongoing for a long time. It emerged in the 1920s, framing itself as an anti-colonial movement, but actually was a very, uh, was a right wing nationalist movement that imagines the land of India, not just India geographically, but also like South Asia broadly from, Kandahar in Afghanistan to Cambodia, really, as land that belongs to Hindus and any other uh, religion or race, like those distinctions are also quite blurry, who belong to that land. So basically to exclude Muslims and Christians mainly. And it's a very casteist movement that is rooted in like a very caste domination framework that also wants to exclude and perpetuate harms towards Dalit Adivasi communities that are untouchable, what were called untouchable communities and indigenous communities in India. And a lot of the framing of this movement has been around why Muslims are a danger to India. And this framing takes on various, you know, forms. It gets articulated differently in the pandemic. For example, there was a lot of discussion on how Muslims in India are having gatherings that are religious gatherings and hence are like spreading the virus. And while this is like, again, like this is not new. We've heard this in the context of the UK when it comes to like BME communities. We've heard this in the context of East Asian communities. And in the context of India, there were news channels that were basically showing pictures or graphics that they had created where the virus was signified as Muslim, you know? And so perpetuating that same idea that there is danger. And so one of the common ways in which this idea gets perpetuated is of course through gender and sexuality because, you know, both Ruba and I are gender studies people like we'll tell you everything is about gender and sexuality. And so obviously the Muslim man becomes a threat as a sexual threat to the sanctity of Hindu women and their bodies, and by extension, the Hindu nation and everything that has to do with upper caste patriarchal imagination of being Hindu. So I'll show you the ad and I'll talk more. It's 45 seconds long, I'll share my screen. And so this ad came out in October and 
it was only 45 seconds long and then I'll tell you what happened. So let me first put the volume. I'll explain later what they're saying. Okay, sorry, there were lots of random ads that it was showing that I didn't know how to shut down. So what is happening essentially in this ad, and I, I know like it can be like hard to understand the cultural signifiers is that the the woman in the ad the woman who's pregnant and who's you know the the newlywed sort of she signified as quite like newlywed in this family and pregnant is a hindu woman and you can tell that from the way that she's dressed and the way in which you know uh she's sort of conducting herself and the family that she's married into is a muslim family because her mother-in-law again has been signified as a muslim woman and in in, in sort of like the south asian register of like trying to understand you know, what is happening if you watch this as someone who is in India or, or just broadly South Asia, you'd be able to like tell what is really going on in this in this scene. So basically what we see here is, is a Hindu woman who's pregnant and she's married into a Muslim family and her mother-in-law is telling her like, come, let's go to the garden at the back of the house. You can see it's a very luxurious, affluent family as well. And then in the garden at the back, her mother-in-law has organized like a ritual, which is a Hindu ritual and usually does not happen in Muslim families. And it's a ritual for pregnant women and particularly like upper caste pregnant women, upper caste Hindu pregnant women. And so she says to her mother-in-law that like, but you don't do this in your family. And the mother-in-law says, yeah, but like, this is a merger of like two different families and two different people. Uh, so, you know, we want to keep you happy. Like we want you to be happy and her, her family is there. As you can see, there was someone wearing the hijab, which again, like signifies that like her side of the family is here. Now this ad came out, it was 45 seconds long. And then basically all of the internet and everything exploded because the Hindu right wing in India immediately started talking about how this ad was love jihad, which is a concept that they've come up with in the last few years and have been talking about a lot and also acting on, which is essentially a concept that Hindu women get groomed by Muslim men and then get duped into marrying Muslim men and then eventually get pregnant and have Muslim babies. And by the time they find out that they that these men are Muslim, because often the idea is that these men fool them into marrying them by pretending to be Hindu. And so like women that I interviewed would say things like, you know, he'll tell you his name is Ram, but his name is actually Rahim. And he will dupe you enough that you can't really get out of it. Like your honor is compromised in some way. You know, so some of the women would tell me that, you know, our girls, Hindu girls, our girls, you know, they'll sit behind mot on motorbikes, they'll sit behind these guys and the, their honor is completely lost once they sort of engage in this kind of romantic sexual behavior with them. And hence they end up marrying into these families and then are forced to have Muslim children. And this is like a plan that Muslim men have. And this is, it may just sound like some kind of like weird discourse, but there's now laws in parts of India which prohibit marriages between Hindus and Muslims until an external authority is consulted to make sure that this is not a case of love jihad. It becomes yet another way really to control women's bodies 
through this narrative and to also ensure caste endogamy where upper caste Hindu women should only marry within upper caste Hindu families to perpetuate the upper caste Hindu nation. And also like a lot of the women that I engaged with who were part of the Hindu right wing movement would, would talk about how they have like counseling centers where they counsel victims of love jihad as well as also beat up the men who are involved. So sort of this is the understanding. So when the ad came out, there was a lot of drama in India. People began to immediately run a campaign called Boycott Tanishk, which is the, the jewelry company that put out the ad. And the, the whole situation got quite bad. There were like the state was making statements about how this ad is not acceptable because it's perpetuating love jihad. People were talking about how this is not acceptable. And so all of this was going on. Now, interestingly, and this is my point, like a response to this violence, because obviously love jihad is violence. It's caste violence. It's, you know, Islamophobic violence. It's fascist right-wing violence. It's violence against women's bodies. It's gender-based sexualized violence, really. This narrative of love jihad that the Hindu right wing is perpetuating. But the one of the main responses to this violence was that a lot of liberal Indians started to talk about the glorious old times when India was such a great country, you know, we were secular, we were multicultural, we didn't have all of these things. And they started to run a campaign called Save Tanish and how we must like save this brand and buy things from this brand. And this is the point that I'm going to make is basically that this narrative of love to counter violence often itself becomes violence. Because in this narrative of love, nostalgia for this past India was continuously invoked as a way to fight the right wing. But that past India was also run along regimes of caste mainly, but also class, also Islamophobia, also gender. In this past India as well, love was being defined through caste lines where violence against intercaste marriages was something and is something that was very 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 much happening and continues to happen and supported by the state and supported by society so in this sort of response to violence by framing love in a particular way we erase the violence of liberal secularism really we erase the violence of caste structures we erase the violence of many other ways in which gender sexuality caste and class were being invoked Secondly, the group Tanishk, the jewelry group, is owned by a company called the Tata Group. And the Tata Group are some of the biggest corporate owners in India. And interestingly, they are big donors to the Hindu right-wing party. And so again, and of course, they are very much responsible for privatization of natural resources, for dispossession, for ongoing struggles that are happening with indigenous communities and other communities in India. So what is happening here is in this sort of like run to use love as a framework against violence, you know, especially this kind of love and this kind of liberal articulation of love, we erase many other forms of violence that are ongoing and that have structured India long before the Hindu right wing came to power. And I think the bigger point here is that this often happens. And in my work, when I was doing my PhD, I also made these mistakes where I focused so much on settlers in the West Bank that, you know, and the sort of framing of the right wing that you then kind of lose or erase or obfuscate the ongoing liberal violence that happens, you know, beyond that. Like in the context of India, where caste regimes have always been violent and continue to be violent, or like in the context of Palestine, where the problem is not just the settlers in the West Bank, but the entire existence of the settler colonial state. 
So sort of I'll end there, but just to make that point that how we think about violence and respond to violence, even in our organizing or our affective emotional responses is also sometimes very violent and very much in erasure. Thank you so much, both of you, for speaking. I'm just sort of conscious of the time and want to give people some space to ask uh, any questions. Um, and uh, yeah, there's some nice hand claps from people listening, which is really nice to see. Um, I thought I just, I have some questions I can ask, but I thought I'd just give space now um, if anyone who was in the audience wanted to put a question in the chat or unmute themselves to speak. I, I, I can see Amelia's put in the chat. I can, which I believe might be a question. Uh, so Amelia, if you want to go ahead and ask, feel free to unmute yourself. Hello, um, thank you so much. That was all uh, incredibly uh, fascinating and, and firing. And I was just thinking about um, the kind of like day-to-day -day nature of violence. And so the, the potentiality of, of work through trauma and what can be found through through that and um, particularly um, as Rubel was saying you know Palestinian women's agentic voices but then I was also considering how um, so much of a particularly western framing around Palestinian existence is only based through extreme violence and trauma so we then kind of how do we make sure that we also still stay engaged with the daily violence that is happening to Palestinians or the daily violence that's happening in Kashmir. Because, you know, when we think about the last few weeks, how suddenly it's almost like you could think from looking at Twitter or the news, everything's sorted, but everything's fine for Palestine, you know, apart from through a few channels. So how do we, um, how do we allow for more uh, a kind of myriad voices and agency uh, and working through trauma and and violence and also not uh, not push for this kind of uh, a, a white savior NGO response that 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 re reacts to the big things or the most extreme things or the times when international media will put lots of children's faces on the on newspapers but the, how do we stay engaged with the daily violence? And I know that's probably not a short answer, but that was just my my my, my thought after all the, the brilliant stuff you said. Yeah. Do you want me to respond or, yeah? Thank you very much for this brilliant question, which really not only goes to the core of the issue, but also I think allows to see also the continuities between what Akanshka and, uh, and I were, were talking about, um, despite obviously the, the different um, uh, narratives we, we shared. Um, I wanted to take this opportunity to actually reiterate uh, something that Akanshka said at the end. And I really also think that my attempt was to show how in the attempt to counter violence, we might reproduce a certain type of violence. And in my, differently from Akanshka, in my, in my um, talk, I wanted to emphasize how the forceful um, and, and the need to remember and to remember in a certain frame and framework, um, coupled with the need to show and to make visible and public and political uh, the grief and the suffering and the pain, which is not to be equated with the nature of trauma. It, this is, is in itself a traumatic 
experience, I think. Um, so the need to do all of this in a way um, brings uh, more violence. I mean, it's a violent act in itself. Um, because I, I believe that uh, when you, you know, when you are obliged for the erasure you, you need to confront, the daily erasure in mainstream media, in mainstream narratives and so on, you are obliged to ask a child, how do you feel after your house has been shelled and you lost everyone? This is um, not the trauma I'm talking about. I think this is traumatic in itself and is a form of dehumanization that we as, I mean, not, I, I obviously I am a much more privileged kind of Palestinian in the diaspora, but we as Palestinians have to um, endure. The second point that I wanted to make is that I, when I talk to a lot of women who appear, whose narrative appear as not verifiable, so to speak, according to our mainstream understanding of what do we have to say to make ourselves be seen and believed uh, according to sort of the, the canons of historical validity that we don't set ourselves, that are set by the, um, the context in which we are, which is highly asymmetrical as well. Uh, so when we are asked to, to marginalize uh, memories that cannot be articulated, that cannot be uh, narrated through a fact-based narrative that cannot be articulated as clear and cogent and cognitive because they are, they are about traumas that women and, and, and sorry, this is my seven years old child. Um, so when we are asked to, uh, to fit into these um, um, canons for us to be believed, we are also being violated. Uh, and, and this is, I think, where I think uh, Primo, Primo Levi is very useful because Primo Levi in his wonderful work uh, painful to read and to um, deal with, obviously, um, has taught us what it means to think through memory uh, via uh, uh, the lens and the frame of trauma. Um, trauma doesn't allow you to process and to speak in, a, uh, in an articulate way, in a, in a cognitive way. Uh, and, and, these, and, and often these memories that are denied existence and validity because they are not factly, fact verifiable, let's say, but they are part, you know, they are narrated as flashbacks, they are narrated as feelings, memories of uh, violent horror moments, but also of very ordinary insignificant events or, um, or facts that ha have not got much visibility also in the nationalist tradition. Um, these are symptoms of, of the trauma that people have endured. And, and that's, you know, and, and it is often the body that keeps the score of this kind of violence that cannot be accorded validity because it cannot be articulated in the way that I explained. So to come back to your question about the ordinary and the everyday, um, I think, for example, in my work, at least, I try to make an effort to think about uh, the violence of dispossessing people from their home as opposed to dispossessing people from their homeland. What it means to lose your own home um, restores to us an understanding of what's at stake in a settler colonial project. It is not just a question of land and dispossession in, mater in a material sense. It is a dispossession of relations, of memories, of safety, of gender relations, of 
um, normality of um, of pain and laughter and grief and everything that Akanshka started her talk with this early, early, early today. Um, so I think the, the, the lens of home, the everydayness of the violence um, of losing one's home as opposed to just losing one's homeland, I think is, is really a way to go for. And I think that what we begin, we began to see this um, or to grasp the, the enormity of losing one's home um, in, in Sheikh Jarrah, I mean, at least we have had uh, exposure to the everydayness of these forms of expropriation. Uh, of the uh, which which are paradoxically also forms of coexistence because in Sheikh Jarrah the two the two young men and women who became quite prominent in in this resistance in Sheikh Jarrah are uh, Muna and Muhammad al Kurd who have lived for years their home has been taken by the settlers and they live in the same home like in the two in two parts of the same home um, so again I think there is a lot to gain by applying this lens. Uh, and finally, really, my last word is about um, something that I always like to mention. Um, so in the memories of the ghetto, of the Warsaw ghetto, there is a memoir that has been written by a socialist, Bundist, uh, Jewish um, fighter, um, which, which is titled uh, The Ghetto Wars. And he recalls how um, Eric Edelman was his name. He recalls how the fight that was going on in the ghetto, the resistance in the ghetto, wasn't a resistance to create a homeland somewhere else at the expense of another people, but it was a fight for home. And so I think that this trope of home has um, goes way back and it's a useful kind of lens to rethink history and what went on in this long-term conflict. Thank you. I really like what you said, Ruba, about shifting the conversation and the struggle from like homeland to home and all that that holds together. Like the way you described it right now was really quite like it's it's really moving and also really useful in terms of organizing and thinking about how to organize. Because it also then counters the narrative of the nation, right? Like which we know that we are also struggling with. And this came up in anti-colonial struggles so much that what is anti-colonial about the anti-colonial struggle if the end is to, to achieve a nation state of a particular kind. So I think like if we shift to like what you described home as and also what you just described home as, all of those things, relations, relationalities, memories, archives, histories all put together. Thanks for that, like that was really moving. No, thank you also for your brilliant, uh, if I may, <laughs> for your brilliant uh, um, talk, which was so enlightening and uh, really interesting. And I so much would like to know more. I haven't seen, uh, sorry for this, but I haven't yeah, seen Anjka, although I follow her work, but I haven't seen her for a while. So I need to use this opportunity to also convey uh, to her my admiration for her work. Yeah, we haven't seen each other since I finished the PhD, I think almost, yeah, four years ago, yeah. Exactly. We're so, so grateful to both of you for, for speaking here tonight. Um, I can't really emphasize that enough. Um, I, I just wanted to check in case anyone else in the audience had any pressing or non-pressing questions they wanted to ask. Um, just before we wrap up, just because I'm conscious of the time um so do interject if 
if you would like to ask something and it's also fine if not um cool i think i think uh it seems like there aren't any more questions i um i mean i have so many things i could ask i also i'm aware that it's quarter past seven and people probably want to to go and have dinner um i guess i'm just thinking if i might briefly ask something about um I kind of am really touched or I'm very interested in the way uh, we think about trauma as inherited or intergen intergenerational forms of violence that might not necessarily explicitly target um, or be experienced by the children in this relationship, but I still very like felt and present. Um, is this thing I guess as articulated by writers like Grace Cho or um so I wondered if you you both might even just briefly speak about how how these stories stories of intergenerational trauma are kind of told told and taught and shared um and whether there is a kind of where kind of hope can be found in those spaces or if if there is or if yeah <laughs> what what might be kind of used in in those those stories that are told i guess do you want me to respond yeah why don't you start uh well it's a very complex question i think that um i mean at the moment i'm not very hopeful i have to say <laughs> Uh, but uh, I mean, if we have to end on a positive note, uh, at least for me, um, the positive um, note here is that I, I was very taken aback and very mesmerized by the creativity, the, uh, the, um, the resilience, um, and I'm using resilience here, not in the kind of UNDP kind of sense <laughs> of enduring uh, your suffering and be be happy with it, but uh, but the the resilience, as in not 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 being defeated, that these young generations who have only seen the occupation in, you know, throughout their life and have seen only um, immobility and stuckedness and and um, and violence, um, how creative and how nonviolent themselves. Uh, uh, non-violent are their forms of resistance and their forms of um, um, articulating their predicament and through poetry, through music, through um, all kinds of kind of creative um, forms of uh, visual arts, but also just the creativity of, uh, of, um, of survival, let's say. I, I was uh, so impressed this time uh, to see all of this going on in, in the West Bank and, and in Gaza. And um, um, so that's the kind of hopeful note I wanted to, to end with. Yeah, I think I agree. And, and, and as I said, like earlier, like the transnational connection of like how people have come together, like even just this action happening in the UK by Palestine action to stop the arms factory and just the other day when you know there were discussions on how the Grenfell Tower fire cladding has a connection to the weapons that are being used in Gaza and the ways in which that direct action could like you know 
on the anniversary of Grenfell was really powerful because we've had absolutely no justice, the people who lost their lives and families and friends and homes. And so I think just making these sorts of connections, which is, is, some, is a place of hope and like that can be intergenerational work because it is intergenerational work since the violence has been intergenerational and has been going on for so long. So I think that that is where I would look for some kind of hope and just to see you know the man who painted in Kashmir he, he climbed up on a bridge and he painted like uh, we are Palestine and then he was arrested uh, by the Indian state for this action that he took of painting this on in Kashmir but just these sorts of acts that always seem to get squashed by the state and by you know by the oppressors but still keep happening so I think yeah that would be that would be where I would see hope of how these intergenerational stories can can become something they already are something but can become something in a different way as well yeah, thank you so much for your answers that's really really wonderful um i think if we sort of wrap up there um so I guess I'll just finish off by once again thanking the speakers for your amazing contributions and thanking the audience for being here and Amy for your help and I guess just extending um, making known this this solidarity uh, this transnational solidarity present here tonight with Palestinians with all colonized people over the world so um thank you so much everyone for being part of this discussion and um I hope that we'll see some of you again in two weeks time for the next session uh, in this series where uh, we're going to be talking about uh, radical education and supplementary schools. We've got uh, Kahinda Andrews to come and speak about uh, black supplementary schools, which is going to be a really amazing, <laughs> really amazing speech and uh, Ken Walpole as well uh, to speak about um, publishing. Um, thank you so much, everyone, again, and uh, hopefully see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rory, Amy, Ruba. See you soon, Ruba. See you soon. Let's have a plan. Yeah. Bye. Thanks, everyone.